Programming on Utah Public Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Dining Services proudly supporting the USU Farmers Market every Thursday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. through October 12th on the Northwest Quad. Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's very interesting uh, subject, we have uh, civil rights pioneer Bob Zellner with us. I wanted to get this uh, email in, a very important email uh, from Steve, who's responding to our program from a couple of days ago. Uh, We were uh, responding to the film Dying in Vain about the opioid crisis and drug addiction, and uh, here's what Steve says. My son is an indie rock musician. He has his own band, he's recorded several albums, has appeared on the David Letterman Show, and he and his band are constantly touring. It sounds glamorous, but it's really quite grueling. Until recently, he was living with a well-known pop singer. About 18 months ago, uh, the couple was pulled over for minor traffic infraction. The police found heroin in the van. Because of her fame more than his, this became news in the music press, and this was how we came to learn of his addiction. Life was hell in the ways that you're discussing on the show. There was a constant nagging fear that one day we'd learn that he was dead. There was the distressing erratic behavior and uh, the discord sown among family members as we blamed each other for what was going on rather than face up to the fact of simple addiction. The story has a happy ending, I think. About six months ago, my son entered rehab in California, followed that up with voluntary time at a halfway house. About a month ago, he and his new girlfriend, driving from L.A. to Brooklyn, spent several days with me. Not only is he clean, but neither he nor she even drinks alcohol. For the first time in a long time, we really enjoyed our time together. The reason I say I think the story has a happy ending is because there never is 100% assurance that the troubles are past. But it sure does seem that way, for which the family is very grateful. That's Steve. Thanks for sharing your story, Steve. Welcome now to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Bob Zellner. He is one of the most influential leaders in the civil rights movement from the 1960s to today. The son and grandson of Ku Klux Klan members, he risked his life and nearly lost it many times in the fight to achieve the second emancipation. As an organizer of the Freedom Rides of 1961, the first white Southerner to serve as field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, he worked alongside Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, Rosa Parks, and many other civil rights leaders. Famous for uh, battles with the KKK, segregationist lynch mobs, and violent police, he's uh, now the individual that uh, a new generation turns to with questions on the racial, historical, and cultural assumptions on which they were raised as they ask themselves, what is my place in this uh, struggle? And uh, Bob Zellner is in Logan uh, to give a uh, lecture in the Tenor Talks series, a conversation which is happening this evening at 7 o'clock. That's on the campus of Utah State University in Logan. Um, Doors open at 6.30, and the event begins at 7 o'clock. That's in the Eccles Science Learning Center, uh, room 130, and that's free and open uh, to the uh, public. So, Bob Zellner, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's see. Let me get your... Need to get your uh, microphone uh, dialed up. Okay. Welcome to the program. Good. Thanks, Tom. Uh, you were telling me before we got one of the air responding to this uh, this email from from Steve that uh, maybe we can uh, treat this parenthetically and then jump into your fascinating history. Um, you said you had you've had your own struggles with 
Yes, it's a good good segue, actually, because uh, I've been uh, clean and sober since about 1984 and uh, going through all the trauma of the civil rights movement. Uh, Many of us had troubles with drugs and alcohol, so uh, there is hope out there. just go to meetings and uh, don't drink and, and use. Well, congratulations uh, to you. Um, and you were saying that uh, many people involved in civil rights. Uh, yes, uh, uh, many people have suffered from uh, post-traumatic stress uh, disorders of different kinds. And uh, many of us have learned how to deal with it ourselves. But mm-hmm. it is hard on family and uh, people that we love. Yeah. Uh, that's an aspect of this I hadn't thought about, but but as you know, reading your book, reading the the trauma that you personally suffered, and that you weren't weren't unusual in that. Um, little wonder that you would suffer from PTSD. Yes, and uh, we didn't think of it as being uh, battle fatigue or anything like that. But uh, we had a lot of people in the Medical Committee for Human Rights that uh, that taught us that we were under tremendous stress, that combat soldiers might have uh, brief periods, uh, fairly brief periods of intense combat. But we had years of uh, our comrades being uh, killed and uh, wounded. And um, I remember when I started with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in the first 36 months of my work, eight of my comrades were killed uh, because we were registering black people to vote in Mississippi and Alabama. Mm. And get this, uh, get to this a little later in the program, but you, you know, a few times thought you were going to be killed. Uh, so I want to, uh, by the way, the, the book is The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement, a, a memoir that you, that you wrote. Um, and that's out and available. I want to mention that very interesting read. Uh, so, Bob Zellner, you come from an interesting background, uh, not an atypical background for the South at that time. Your grandfather and father were members of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, uh, I did come from, I came from a a fundamentalist Christian background uh, and a Klan background. So you might say that I came from uh, a long line of uh, fundamentalist terrorists. Yeah. So uh, we're faced with that today. Uh, We're uh, globally, basically. And uh, the way I think that we, one of the ways we deal with it is to, uh, look at ourselves and uh, try to uh, develop some diversity in our institutions, churches, universities, uh, and um, we, we we really have to deal with this, or we're going to lose our democracy. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, you write about this in in the book. Um, being a member of the Klan, I guess, was you know, the various people had various reasons for joining. And uh, you were raised in L.A., you say, in the, in the book, which stands— Yeah, Lower Alabama. Lower Alabama. <laughs> yeah, son of a Methodist preacher, so the family moved quite often, but spent quite a bit of time in Alabama. Oh, yes. And uh, <clears throat> I was very lucky because my father was the one that broke with the Ku Klux Klan after going to Europe in the middle 30s. And he saw the rise of uh, fascism and Nazism in, uh, in Europe. And he had gone there basically to uh, convert the Jews to be Christians so that the, uh, his ideological soulmates, the uh, fascists, wouldn't uh, murder them. Hmm. And I remember asking my dad if he converted any Jews, and he said, no, they converted me, made <laughs> me a human being. So hmm. I was very lucky to grow up after my father had broken with the Klan and uh, didn't understand the emotional turmoil that he must have gone through when his father and mother disowned him and his brothers and sisters never spoke to him again in his life. 
Well, his brothers, some of his sisters did speak to him, yeah. yes. It's, it's an amazing break. It must have taken great courage to, to do that. Tell me a little bit more about this 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 important trip in, in his life. He was he was going to Bob Jones University, which was a fairly new university at the time. Bob Jones Sr., I, I guess, uh, saw something in him and invited him to go on this on this trip. Yes, mo- mother and dad were both uh, early graduates of Bob Jones College, which became Bob Jones University. So anybody on the conservative side of the United States knows about this institution. In fact, uh, Bob Jones was my godfather, and I think I turned out to be one of his biggest disappointments. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> because I was supposed to follow in that right-wing uh, footsteps. And uh, Dad did also uh, until, and he was a gifted uh, preacher. Uh, One of the requirements at the early Bob Jones and even his boarding school in high school was to uh, do street corner preaching. So Mm. he preached on street corners, and he was um, not only a Klan member, he was a Klan organizer. Mm. He was a... I think he was called a uh, a Klegel or something. He was mm-hmm. responsible for recruiting. So um, it was amazing when he went to Europe. And he had experiences there after Bob. He went with Bob Jones to form a fundamentalist Christian center in Europe. And after Bob Jones came back, he stayed. And um, he was going to underground uh, Jewish groups and so forth, some of whom had converted to be Christians. And he joined up uh, his little tour of uh, Germany, Poland, Latvia, Estonia, parts of the Soviet Union, was joined by a group of gospel singers from the South, and they were all African Americans. And he said after they traveled together for a few days, they sang the same songs, they prayed the same prayers, and he said he forgot they were black. And this troubled him. For a while, right? Oh, yes. He thought he was having a nervous breakdown. He said, this is important. You know, these people are black. You're white. You're a Klansman. And uh, he said, finally, it became such a problem. He said, while I'm in Europe, I'll forget about it because they all call us the Americans. Mm. And they don't make a distinction between the black Americans and the white Americans. I'll forget about it while I'm here. And when I go back to Birmingham, I'll be a good Klansman again. But he said, that ruined me as a Klansman. Mm Mm-hmm. So he comes back, and he's now in this, you know, this tradition, right, that he's been raised in. Yes. That must have been hard to make that break. Well, it was very hard. Uh, he, mother and dad had five boys, and uh, by this time he's a Methodist minister, and he's trying to reconcile his uh, old racist beliefs with uh, the new uh, gospel of uh uh, Jesus, and he couldn't reconcile those. And um, being an honest person, he wrestled with it for a long time. He had what we call in the South a nervous breakdown. Mm. And, uh, mm. you know, in the family, it was funny because it was perfectly okay to talk about granddaddy and daddy being in the clan, but it was a great secret that daddy had a nervous breakdown. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was also a great secret. Uh, you finally got this from your mother. She'd never talk about her ancestry, right? There was a secret there. Oh, yes, it was a secret there because, uh, well, two secrets. Number one was that my grandmother was a Creek Indian, basically, from Bluntstown, uh, Florida, which was the head of the Apalachicola band of Creek Indians. And um, also uh, her father uh, was a Woods Colt. And um, I always wondered, what is a Woods Colt? And I found out later on it's a, it's a... Um, uh, an unwed mother. 
Okay. So yeah. uh, that was a great. On my father's side, we could trace our family all the way back to Germany, the Zellners. Mm-hmm. But on the Hardy side, we could only go back past my mother's grandfather. Mm-hmm. And I finally I asked her, and she said, "Well, uh, they, he was a bastard." And so these were dark secrets. At the same time, you know, being a member of the clan was, I guess, a, a, a badge <laughs> of honor, right? That's, that's times change. Uh, hopefully, they've, they've changed. Um, so. Let's skip forward a little bit to uh, you're you're in college, and um, you took an assignment more seriously than the professor wanted you to. That's uh, one of the ways you got into uh, on your journey toward uh, being involved with the student nonviolent coordinating committee. Yes, uh, we were. I was in a sociology class, and we were given an assignment to study uh, the race uh, problem and to write a paper on solutions to the problem. And uh, it wasn't unusual. It was a church school, Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama. And in sociology, it was all right for you to study just about anything, but don't get involved. Don't actually do anything. So uh, while we were writing this paper, five of us in the class told our professor that we were going to go interview Dr. King and Mrs. Rosa Parks. And he said, you can't do that. And we said, well, they made the Montgomery bus boycott. That's one way of dealing with the racial problem, do away with segregation. And they were successful. And people come from all over the world to study what happened here in Montgomery. He said, well, you can't do that. You'll be arrested. But uh, that only improved our uh, curiosity because we said, you mean we can get arrested doing a research for a college paper? And he said, in Montgomery you can if you meet with black people. And uh, we said, well, we're going to go and do it anyway. He said, you don't know anything about race relations. That's a, that's why we said that's why we're in this class. Right. <laughs> so you, you you did go and meet with? Yes, we met with Dr. King. We met with Mrs. Parks, and they actually became mentors for me for years and years. I was went to jail with Dr. King and marched mm-hmm. with him and so forth. But um, at that time, he said to us when we asked him if we could come to a nonviolent workshop at Reverend Abernathy's church. He said, yes, you can come, but you might be arrested. And we said, that's what our professor said. And he said, that's why he's a professor. He knows that you could be arrested. And we said, well, we don't think we'll be arrested, but we we really want to come and see what a nonviolent workshop's like. So we went, and there was John Lewis and the people from SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who had already started the uh, lunch counter sit-ins. And... um, so we met with them. But at the end of the meeting, Dr. King came over and said, uh, you know, the church is surrounded and the police are going to arrest the five of you white students. And I said, well, Dr. King, we need to escape. And he said, well, you remember I told you you might be arrested. Mm. And I said, well, we need to try to escape. So he said, well, uh, Reverend Abernathy and Mrs. Parks can take you down to the basement and I'll go out the front if they all run around there. At least you can uh, they'll open the back door and you can run for it. So uh, while we were waiting for Dr. King to go out the front, Mrs. Parks uh, touched me on this left elbow. I haven't washed that since then. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, uh, Bob, when you students see something wrong, you have to do something about it. You can't mm-hmm. study it forever. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I got in the civil rights movement. So... Uh, I guess that's the direct line there. I was going to ask you how how you 
You took that advice. I took that advice. Get, get, don't yeah. just study it, get involved. Yeah, get involved. And we really began to learn about race relations because uh, they did open the door and we ran out and we were able to escape from the police. And we went back to our uh, college campus, a church campus, um, and we were met by the whole administration and they said all five of us have to resign from school. Hmm. So we were uh, uh, we were about to be expelled because we had gone to an integrated meeting. Yeah, this was a this was a sin, right? This was oh, it was definitely a sin. It was okay to study something. It was okay to go to church <clears throat> and talk about all people are brothers, but uh, to go to a black church and hear uh, 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 Martin Luther King give a sermon and have a nonviolent workshop, you couldn't do that. That was against the law. Hmm. The attorney general of the state of Alabama called all five of us in and said, uh, you've fallen under the communist influence. This was 50 years ago, almost almost 60 years ago now, I guess, whatever. But anyway, uh, he said, you've fallen under the communist influence. And I said, are they communists in Alabama? And he said, no, but they come through here. Yeah, right. (laughs) So we had obviously fallen under communist influence because Mm -hmm. we wanted to go to a black church. Right. I guess this this was a way to, you know, try to wrap the institution's head around this. This is upsetting the social order, right? Which is, oh yes, which is prevailed uh, any, and very important. Well, I, in studying sociology and psychology, I realized that what the racists were trying to do, the segregationists, and still trying to do it in my state of Alabama, they were trying to nip any kind of dissent very quickly in the bud. So even if you were just trying to learn about something. It's like uh, research on climate now and research on mass shootings being outlawed now by the government. You can't, uh, re- you can't get government money to research those things. <clears throat> well, in those days, they had to, uh, had to stop the dissent very early. Otherwise, it might spread. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Bob Zellner. Uh, he's a civil rights uh, pioneer, and uh, he is uh, giving a Tanner talk, and a series of Tanner talks from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And you have an opportunity to uh, hear from this civil rights activist and author. Uh, his memoir is called The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement. And uh, you have an opportunity to hear him if you're in the Logan area this evening. 7 o'clock is when the event begins. Doors open at 6.30. And this is on the USU campus, free and open to the public, Eccles Science Learning Center, room 130. More with Bob Zelder following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau featuring community concerts in Logan's Tabernacle Monday to Friday and celebrating 50 years at the Kane Lyric Theater and 25 years at Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. More information available online at explorelogan.com. Did you know that libraries in Cache Valley are being transitioned into civic spaces of the future? Researchers have received a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to work with libraries in northern Utah and the students they serve. They will involve students and their families in maker activities, which combine arts and crafts with technology and engineering. Teachers are excited to discover ways to reach more students. Many physics, biology, art, and shop teachers now have their students engaged in these projects. In North Logan, the library is already opening its doors to all kinds of learning activities. Community members are coming to participate in arts, crafts, and computer classes for seniors. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. 
committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we have with a civil rights activist and author, Bob Zellner. Uh, he is in Logan for an event this evening. This is an event in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And uh, Bob Zellner will be uh, talking this evening beginning at 7 o'clock. Doors open at 6.30. This is at the Eccles Science Learning Center on the USU campus in Logan, room 130, free and open to the public. Bob Zellner's uh, memoir is The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement. And, uh, Bob, you were telling me before the uh, during the break that uh, this has been optioned for a movie. Uh, yes, we just signed a contract uh, with um, uh, Spike Lee as uh, executive producer to uh, do a film, a feature film on the book. And uh, they're moving quite along uh, with it. And now they're talking about particular actors and so forth. So it's all exciting movie talk, but uh, you never know when a movie might actually get made. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a little iffy, but uh, you know Spike Lee, a big name. That's that's great. Who who would you like to play you? Uh, Ansel Elgort. <laughs> Ansel Elgort. Uh, okay. Ansel Elgort. He played uh, Baby Driver, okay. and he's very uh, popular with the young people. Yeah. I'm 78, but he's going to play a 21-year-old. Play the young you. Yeah. Yes. All right. Great. <laughs> well, well, we'll look forward to that. We'll see if uh, Spike Lee d- does cast him. Um, and a very interesting book. Uh, highly recommend. Wrong side of Murder Creek: A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement. As we've been talking early in the program, if you just joined us, uh, Bob Zellner is the son and grandson of Ku Klux Klan members. And he risked his life, nearly lost it many times in the fight to achieve the second emancipation. And uh, he uh, joined, we're going to get into the, the story here of how Bob Zellner uh, raised in uh, mostly in southern Alabama, L.A., lower Alabama. Lower was Alabama, yeah. <laughs> East Bruton, Alabama. It was on the wrong side of Murder Creek. It was yeah. across the creek from uh, the rich town Bruton, Alabama. Okay, so that, hence the title. Um, and uh, so White Southerner, and uh, his, his, we've learned in the first segment, of the program, his father had this very interesting seminal trip uh, to Europe uh, there with uh, Reverend Bob Jones uh, Sr. to convert the Jews, but uh, he stayed after the Reverend Jones came back, and he had some uh, some interesting experiences, and, and that led him to leave the Klan when he, when he came back, um, and that's the uh, atmosphere in which uh, Bob Zellner was raised, and he took a step further, joining the uh, Civil Rights uh, Movement. Um, you are welcome to join this conversation uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to get your question or comment uh, for Bob Zellner. Uh, you could call us as well, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. This uh, email has come in uh, right now from Charles, who has emailed us to upraxcess at gmail.com. He says, lately I've uh, seen a pickup truck going around Logan flying a king-sized Confederate flag. I find this disturbing. I wonder how people might respond in positive ways. Any suggestions? Um, well, I think we can uh, respond to that in positive ways because it gives you an opportunity for conversation. Um, there's a huge conversation going on in the country about uh, the Confederate flag and Confederate monuments. And... Um, 
I think that we can reach some common ground on these things. In fact, uh, back in the 60s, when I was working to organize uh, white uh, Southerners, poor and working class white Southerners, uh, one of the organizations that was formed was the student, Southern Student Organizing Committee, and uh, it was called SOC. And uh, their uh, logo was a black and white uh, hands clasped over a Confederate flag. So it's saying that we can take the best of the Southern traditions and put it together with uh, current uh, anti-racism work and uh, make it work. So I think that uh, people need to recognize that large numbers of the uh, American public, black and otherwise, think that the Confederate flag is a symbol of slavery. And it's not just a symbol of white heritage. It's one of the worst symbols of white heritage. But uh, the fact that black and white can clasp hands I think that many of the black people who've gone to other parts of the country to have their careers are coming back to the South because they like the, they like the South. People are honest with each other. And um, maybe the Southerners are a little bit more open uh, with their feelings. And one of the things I think Trump has done, uh, not necessarily a good thing, he's made it uh, acceptable to use the N-word again and to be openly racist. So that gives us a good conversational opportunity. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's pick that up before we resume your your story. Um, you you see it as, and many have said it as well, that uh, the fact that uh, President Trump is out there openly saying some of these things gives permission to large swaths of the, the, the public who perhaps had these views but weren't openly expressing them. Now, now they are. Uh, yes, and uh, and thanks to was it Charles that wrote the email? Charles, about? yes. Yeah, thanks uh, to Charles because it makes one of the main points that I try to make in my lecture series in colleges and universities, and that's the responsibility of young white people to do anti-racism work. So when somebody points out the the contradictions of flying the Confederate flag, uh, that's a good thing. In other words. We, as white people, have a responsibility to do anti-racism work, even if we live in a state with very few people of color uh, or a, a university like Utah State University where there are very few people of color, maybe. But there's still a responsibility of white students, especially Mormons, uh, church people of all kinds, to do anti-racism work because it's not just up to the black people to fight racism. It's not just up to the immigrants to fight anti-immigrants. It's not just up to LGBTQ people to fight for them. We all have to fight for each other, and that's what we're doing in North Carolina in the Moral Mondays movement, and that's what we're doing in the New Poor People's Campaign. We'll talk about all this tonight. Okay. Uh, so maybe just follow up a little bit. You you give this advice to the to the students, uh, and I'm I'm sure you go on to say how. And if you could say a, a little bit of word about about how you would suggest uh, stu- especially young people go about doing the the work of a- anti racism. Well, the how is a, is a step by step basically. And first of all, it's to make up for the uh, limitations in our educational uh, institutions. Uh, from K through uh, college and graduate school. We do not teach the history of struggle in this country. We teach uh, uh, peace and, and, uh, and light. They've made Martin Luther King into a saint, uh, and he was a very radical dude. And he moved in the Poor People's Campaign 
to move to an economic revolution in the United States, a social and economic moral revolution. So first thing that white students have to do in learning to do good anti-racism work is to learn their own history. Because when we were in school, we didn't learn about the women's suffrage movement. We didn't even realize that women only got the vote in 1920. And we didn't know anything about the Lincoln Brigade, Americans that went to Spain to fight against the fascists even before the Second World War. We didn't learn about the labor movement. There's all kinds of things we didn't learn in school because they don't want to really teach struggle in school. Mm. And this would be a good point to, for me to give a shout out to uh, Professor Jason Gilmore, a friend of uh, UPR, organizer of your uh, visit here. Dr. Jason, yes. Um, he is, he's been involved in, uh, in, in taking uh, students, USU students and other students on civil rights pilgrimages uh, to help them to learn some of this history. And, uh, we've had uh, uh, results of some of this on the radio here, which has been great. The, the series 52 Strong, 54 Strong, and uh, there's another one uh, coming up. Yes, and uh, my my wife and partner, Pamela, and I will be on that tour as we were the last uh, one. I've been on the last seven of their tours, and uh, Jason Gilmore is a treasure. He is, you're very lucky to have him right here in this town and on this university campus. So, yeah, I, f- I forgot. You were involved. You will be involved in these. Oh, yes, these we'll be, we'll be traveling with him, so we know each yeah. other very, very well. Excellent. I want to uh, jump back into your, to your history. Um, so we've got you um, through college and during college you took a sociology uh, um, experiment paper uh, too seriously from the point of view of the professor you actually went and talked to uh, dr. King and to, to Rosa Parks um, this I guess made you see and you took some advice from, from Rosa Parks that you shouldn't just study this you should get involved oh I did yes I, I don't think anybody's ever had a clearer commission in the uh, in the Civil Rights War than I got from uh, St. Rosa Parks, that quiet woman of granite who uh, everybody says she was just tired. No, she was a fighter. She was a secretary of the local NAACP. And uh, when she said, uh, Bob, you have to take action, I took that as an order. Mm -hmm. I I said, yes, uh, I will. And I joined SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first white Southerner to be a field secretary for SNCC. And our first staff meeting was in Macomb, Mississippi, on October the 4th, 1961, mm-hmm. 57 years ago yesterday. Wow. It was the first time I was arrested and I was almost beaten to death. That was your first? That was That's, the first arrest, uh, 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 yes. Before, before, just before the interview, I was reading that pulse-pounding chapter. <laughs> that was your first <laughs> experience. Wow, what a, what a baptism by, by fire. Let's, let's talk about that. That's, uh, it's, it's high adventure. I can see why they want to make your story into a movie. Um, so you were saying you were raised in Alabama, but you and, and most everybody else, when you thought about going to Mississippi, the, the, the pulse raced, raced faster. The, Mississippi was known as very hardcore. Oh, yes. Uh, everybody in Alabama was very grateful for Mississippi because uh, if Alabama was next to the worst, Mississippi was the worst. So right. we could always say, well, Mississippi is worse. Yeah. So when we went to Mississippi in uh, 1961 to do voter registration work, we knew it was going to be very bad. And uh, the people in Mississippi just started killing people. Any black person that went down to register to vote, they would kill them. Yeah. And... Uh, that was one of the most, we understood it was one of the most basic of the democratic rights is the right to vote. And if part of our population, and in the South sometimes it would be up to half or more of the population, 
couldn't register to vote. We had no democracy. So uh, you, uh, as you're planning this, you have to be very careful, right? The, the plan is you'll arrive in Macomb early in the morning because the, you know, the, the clan and the others are vigilant about you. Oh yes, we we went in early in the morning, uh, and it was the first meeting of the of the SNCC staff. That was the staff just coming together that fall of 1961, and um, we went in uh, before daylight. Uh, we uh, got to the Masonic Temple. We went upstairs in the Masonic Temple, which was in the middle of the black community, the safest place you could be. And the police weren't even allowed to come past the curtain in, in the Masonic Temple. So, um, But during our meeting, 135 students from the Berglund High School walked out of school and came to where we were and started making signs. And uh, they were going to actually go down and protest the murder of Herbert Lee, who had gone down to register and vote. And he was killed by his next-door neighbor, E.H. Hurst, who was a member of the Mississippi State Legislature. So Herbert Lee was executed in public by being shot in the head because he went to register to vote. Mm -hmm. And when those students walked out, they came to where the SNCC meeting was, and we were supposed to be the great leaders, and they made signs and started the march. And um, I had to decide whether to go with them. I would be the only white person in the march. And I had to make a decision that uh, even though I might not be able to get on white campuses, I was supposed to be a campus traveler. And uh, I said, my dad will lose his church, and mother will lose her teaching job, and there will be more violence than usual. And then I realized, what's going to happen to these kids what's going to happen to these high school students some is 14 15 16 years old brenda travis who had already been arrested three times she was 16 years old mm. and of course i had to join them and yeah. that was uh, my baptism of fire you said it was it was you found out it was the it was the snick way that we you didn't you, you didn't formally say who's in who's out if you're if you're going to be in you just quietly joined that's right. Nobody said you should go on this march. Nobody said you should not go on this march. You had to make a, if you were going to put your life on the line, you had to make that decision yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, we knew that that would uh, we we would uh, be putting our life on that. It was the first demonstration like that in the state of Mississippi since the Civil War. Mm. Wow. Uh, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the the idea of nonviolence. This is you know very much associated with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and you're having so so the march starts in the in the black part of town. You cross the tracks. You and then a crowd, uh, a mob gathers, and uh, then you start to be attacked. Yes. And, and you say you, it was kind of an odd thing. You your mind is dissociating from your body. Your your oh yeah. Your your karate training is taking over, and you're you're trying to soften the blows. You also say you were involved in ballet, was it? And so that that training? yeah, I was I was well trained for for this day because I was a martial arts instructor, mm-hmm. and I was also a first dancer of the Montgomery Alabama Civic Ballet. Yeah, so I was in shape. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were a ballet dancer, then you had to be a good fighter. Right. Everybody said, "Oh, you ballet? I'm going to whip you." I said, "Okay, come on." <laughs> And you were used to fighting. You, you know, the, yes. the, 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 the Zellner brothers had to fight their way into every town, you said. Uh, so the thought you had in the middle of this is, hey, we can take these guys. And then you remember, okay, we're supposed to be nonviolent. Oh, yes. Uh, when they started beating me, a uh, little mob uh, uh, formed around me. And then Bob Moses and Chuck McDoo, both African-American uh, staff members of SNCC, they came to stand between me and the people that were beating me. 
And for a moment, I thought, well, you know, these guys were all in good shape. They're football players. And I said, we can whip all these people. And then I realized, no, we're supposed to be nonviolent. Right, right. <laughs> so through, uh, uh, through all of this, uh, you end up, I think, trying to get into the, the, the upsteps of the courthouse. They, they end up uh, dragging you away, get you in a car. Well, what happened there is the the police came over and uh, they uh, beat uh, uh, Chuck and uh, and Bob Moses and dragged them off and left me with the mob. And the little clan mob around me tried to drag me into the street. And there were about 400 people out there. And I knew they would kill me if they got me in the street. So I held on to the rail on the city hall steps. And uh, they would pull... 15 people trying to pull me loose from a, a, thank goodness it was a good rusty rail, and they couldn't pull me loose. And when they would uh, come back to get another pull, I would move up the rail. And they got so frustrated that one guy came over the back of my head and started gouging my left eye. Mm, And he tried to get my eyeball and and actually pull it out of my uh, eye socket. And I used my martial arts training to I would move my head at the right moment, and my eyeball would thunk back into my uh, eye socket. Wow. So, And I was really have, as you said, an out-of-body experience because I'm thinking, well, <clears throat> this is Southern mayhem. This is what Southerners do to dissidents. Uh, they kill them or maim them or blind them. And uh, finally, they piled on top of me, broke me loose, took me into the— uh, sheriff's uh, uh, office in the city hall, and I asked to make a phone call, and he said, "Phone call? You, you'll uh, you'll be lucky if you get through the day alive." And he threw me out in the mob, and they took me out to uh, um, to lynch me. Yeah, all through this, and I, I don't want to say the word, but I'll just you know shorten it up. The 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 the, uh, the worst epithet they could hurl at you, uh, end lover, right? Oh yeah, they were going to be end lover. Uh, Yankee, Jew, communist from New York, and I'd say, "Oh, wait, wait, wait! I'm not from New York." Right. right. <laughs> I was. It was very important for them to, to know. And when when they got me uh, out in the country, and they started uh, really, literally getting ready to hang me, they had a hangman rope and everything. And um, <clears throat> one of uh, the people in the mob kept calling me by name. And the Klan leader finally said, what are you calling this guy? And he said, Zellner. And he said, how do you know his name? And he said, we were classmates at Huntington College. Mm. So this is a classmate who was a Klansman, now in Macomb, Mississippi. And uh, I, that probably saved my life because yeah. they finally said, well, we can't really hang him. Uh, and because they said his daddy was one of us. Mm. Now, ordinarily, that would make them more inclined uh, because Daddy had left the Ku Klux Klan, so it's very complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, what are the uh, as you're marching, you hear your name yelled. What are the odds that you, this classmate ended up up here? But I guess that ended up being a, a part of saving your life. Oh yeah, and uh, Doc was a, uh, a Huntington classmate. He was an older student. He was a, a Army Ranger, so he was one of the toughest of the tough. And he and I had had a lot of. Um, contests and bouts uh, in college and he had never been able to to uh, defeat me in boxing or wrestling or any of those things and so we had that kind of rivalry and I knew that he was a Klansman and he was kind of the leader of the Klan group on campus in those days uh, we had fraternities sororities and we had Klan and non-Klan so Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Yeah. The, 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 it was just the luck of the draw. The first demonstration I was ever on was in Macomb, Mississippi, his hometown. Yeah. We'll take a break here soon, but I want to uh, finish this up. Um, I think maybe this is just my perception that this uh, this whole history gets uh, a little bit softened around the edges uh, as time goes on. Um but the fact is that, as you just said, and you you read it in the book, I'm sure we'll hear it tonight as well, um, many of these events, everyone going into it went out knowing I could be killed Oh yes, doing this. Yes, that, that was one of the decisions you had to make in those days. And when the Freedom Riders first came to Montgomery, I was still a college student, and uh, they were beaten so badly, I went to the hospital, uh, St. Jude Hospital, which was the only place uh, black and white could go to in Montgomery, Alabama, a Catholic uh, hospital. And I, I saw Jim's work there. He couldn't see. He couldn't uh, walk. He had been beaten so almost to death. And I said, um, Jim's work, your freedom ride is over. And he said, oh, no, as soon as I'm able, I get back on the bus. Hmm. And I said, Jim, if they treat you that way in Alabama, they're going to kill you when you get to Mississippi. And he said, I know we've written our wills. Amazing. Amazing. So what, you know, I'm sure you, I don't know, did you did you talk in, in SNCC about the danger? Did you talk, did you talk about why you were, were, were doing this? There's a lot of determination here. This is coming on the heels of decades of of terrorism, right? Uh, especially and, and in Mississippi, if you like Medgar Evers or, and some of the veterans that came back from the Second World War, they could be lynched for wearing their American uniform hmm. by Klansmen who were going to kill them because they were wearing the uniform they had gone to defend their country. Yeah, yeah. so we knew <clears throat> that we wouldn't do this work if we didn't uh, weren't prepared to die. And that's what happened to the three civil rights workers in 1964, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney. They knew that they were going to be killed, especially after the first one was killed. And yet they looked at the killers in the eye and they said, I understand how you feel. Mm. That's how each one of us was trained, so that if we had to, we could die. Yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, uh, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about this, the subtitled book, A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement. By the way, the title is The Wrong Side of Murder Creek. We're talking with Bob Zelder, a civil rights uh, pioneer. How were, how were you perceived, um, I guess, to the to white society? Were you seen as a traitor? You were, you were a white Southerner, and you're, you're on the other side. And, and also, how were you perceived in, in SNCC? Well, I was perceived two or three different ways. A lot of the really hardcore uh, racists in the South uh, saw me as a race traitor. Well, that was the worst thing you could possibly be. If you weren't showing solidarity with your tribe, your white people, then you were the worst possible. But there were a lot of other white Southerners that knew that racism was wrong, and they had to do something about it. So uh, many of them looked, uh, I, I learned this years later in some cases, many uh, uh, young Southerners my age who didn't become as active as I was saw me as an inspiration and, and as a leader. Mm. Um, <clears throat> my brothers and sisters in SNCC uh, were at first very uh, suspicious because I had a, a really backwoods uh, southern accent, even though I had take, taken drama and speech and all that. But uh, And they knew that my daddy was in the Ku Klux Klan and so forth. 
So they uh, were, of course, very suspicious. Am I a spy or whatever? But after Macomb, when um, we were all threatened with the hangman's rope and other people were taken out that same day and threatened with uh, hanging, uh, we were welded together. So if you feel that you're alienated from people of color or LGBTQ people, get involved with them, getting in the fight with them, and then, uh, then you're uh, brothers and sisters. Mm. Julian Bond writes the foreword. In that foreword, he calls you a brother. Oh, yes, definitely. You know, Julian was, was a real brother. Um, he was my best man uh, in two weddings. I was mm-hmm. uh, organizing very hard on family life. Right. So. And the second time, he was my best man. He said, Bob, this is the last time I'm going to be your best man. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, I probably won't need you again. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Julian is dead now. And uh, I, I'll have him spiritually if we have another wedding. Yeah. Yes. Okay, he'll, he'll be there. He'll be there spiritually. Uh, what about uh, John Lewis? You need, do you know? Oh yeah, John, John Lewis. John and I both uh, grew up in uh, Lower Alabama, and uh, he w- was on a sharecropper farm. And I worked on my uncle's sharecropper farm, not too far from his farm in Troy, Alabama, and we were in uh, right out from Dothan, Alabama. Mm-hmm. So uh, we grew up in the same area with the same experiences. His name is John Robert Lewis, and my name is John Robert Zellner. Mm-hmm. And we were both really good, close friends of Martin Luther King. And um, J- John Lewis met him even as a high school student. Before he went to college, he met Dr. King. So I was always very close to John Lewis, and he's been a, a great uh, uh, person who's kept his integrity and he's Mr. Civil Rights as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Let's take another break and we'll come back with our last segment uh, with Bob Zellner. Uh, we are, uh, he's in uh, Logan, he's in studio with us because he's here to uh, give a, a talk in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And uh, that event is free and open to the public. You have the opportunity to come and hear from uh, Bob Zellner uh, tonight in Logan, 7 o'clock. Doors open at 6.30. This is on the USU campus in the Eccles Science Learning Center, room 130. You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like as well. A couple of ways to do that. You can call us at 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraccess at gmail.com. The book is The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement. More with Bob Zellner following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Mountain Arts and Music Festival, Saturday, October 7th, offering live music from 10 a.m. to dusk at Huntsville Square, evening music by Chris Rock and the Laszlo's. Details at mountainartsandmusic.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, presenting living history at the American West Heritage Center, featuring mountain men, pioneers, and turn-of-the-century farmers, Activities include pony rides, tomahawk throwing, and ragdoll making. Information available at explorelogan.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with Bob Zellner. He's author of a memoir called The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, a white southerner in the freedom movement. That's been optioned by Spike Lee. Uh, We may see it in movie form uh, coming up. 
Um, and uh, Bob Zellner, civil rights activist and author, will be giving a presentation in the Tanner Talks series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University this evening at 7. Doors open at 6.30. That's in the Eccles Science Learning Center, room 130. That's free and open to the public. Uh, so I want to bring things again back to today, Bob Zellner. Much else uh, in the book, and uh, you can come and hear uh, more, I'm sure, uh, tonight at the presentation. Uh, you're involved in many of the events in the, in the civil rights uh, movement. Um, I want to ask you about uh, Dr. King. What, uh, t- tell us a little bit more about him. What, uh, what was he like? Uh, well, I do like to talk about Dr. King. Uh, when I first met Dr. King, uh, well, he was only, he's only 10 years older than me. So I was so young, he seemed like he was totally grown at the time. But he was still uh, uh, Martin Luther King. In fact, his nickname was Mike because his original name was Michael King. But anyway, um, he was very modest uh, person, extremely uh, well educated, uh, and um, he. Uh, one of the things I admired about Dr. King his whole life was that he never cared about money. Um, he um, got uh, fifty thousand dollars as a uh, Nobel Peace Prize, and that was a fortune in those days. He gave it all right to the movement. Um, he, when I uh, knew him, he has had an old car, and Dexter Avenue uh, Church in Montgomery, where he preached, uh, kept wanting to get him a new car every year. And he said, "No, this one's fine." They wanted to give him a raise. He made five thousand dollars a year. Can you imagine that? They wanted to give him a raise, and he said, "No, I'm traveling all over the place. I'm, uh, you don't need to give me a raise." So he he just never cared about money. And uh, he knew somehow or another that uh, he was given a tremendous gift when E.D. Nixon really and uh, other, Rosa Parks and other people in Montgomery picked him to be the head of the Montgomery uh, Improvement Association. And uh, the NAACP had been outlawed in uh, Alabama, was not functioning. So that really made uh, Martin Luther King into a world leader. Mm. But he had it in his soul. He had it in his um, character to, to do that. Just a, a couple of minutes left. I, I want to end on uh, with today. Um, so I, I think as is obvious, uh, especially with, uh, with the election of President Trump and the, the, the whole argument over the, the monuments and memorials and, and uh, events that are happening, the, the uh, struggle continues. And you, you said earlier one of the messages you have for college students, presentations like you're going to give tonight, is, uh, uh, is they need to be involved. What, how what would you say more? Expand on that. Well, it's our responsibility as uh, as white uh, people, especially white young people, uh, because first of all, young people are not as uh, uh, locked into the old uh, ideas that we had before. But you know, I have a question for young people and everybody. How uh, this is fifty-seven years since my first arrest. I've worked basically in civil rights for over 60 years because I really began as a high school student. And how can we all work so hard, so long, to make a progressive, unified country and something happens 50 years later that all of a sudden division and hatred and uh, strife is what characterizes our nation. The whole world is concerned about what's happening here. And um, I think it's because we really haven't dealt with uh, 
the racism of the past because our history is so indelibly uh, based on um, genocide of indigenous peoples. Here we are in the West, the home of the Utes, the Native Americans, and Native Americans were systematically, since uh, Columbus basically, eliminated on the uh, basis of the doctrine of discovery. If you're Christians and you discover uh, heathen and pagan lands, you're allowed to capture those lands, capture those people, and so forth. So uh, based on the genocide against indigenous people and the um, unpaid labor of enslaved black people, that's the basis of our capitalism. And we have not dealt with it, and we have to, because we have to pull together in order to save the world. Uh, those few 100, uh, one percenters don't care about the climate. They don't care about uh, nuclear war. In fact, some of them want to have a nuclear war for the rapture. Now, that's too wild for American democracy. So I think there's a great hope that there's a, a good humanity in the American people. I think basically all people are good. We're going to come back to our democracy, but we have to win it back. Good place to end the hour. We've been spending the hour with Bob Zellner, civil rights activist and author. He's giving a presentation this evening in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. That's free and open to the public. You can come and, uh, and hear Bob Zellner. Uh, that's on the campus of Utah State University in Logan in the Eccles Science Learning Center, room 130. The door is open at 630. The event starts at 7. And Bob Zellner's book, his memoir, is The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, A White Southerner in the Freedom Movement. That's been optioned for a movie by Spike Lee, so we may see it in a movie form coming up. Bob Zellner, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Tom Williams, you are a wonderful person and a great promoter. Thank you so much for being on NPR. Thank you so much, and thanks for listening to Access Utah. Philip K. Dick wrote some of the craziest science fiction ever, and it's weirdly, creepily relevant today. But what was he like as a person? We asked his ex-wife. I think that someone like Philip comes along every thousand years or so. He is so unique. The life and work of Philip K. Dick. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Join us Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.